Welcome to Access Utah. Today we're going to be talking with John Garth, author of Tolkien and the Great War, The Threshold of Middle-Earth, along with other books. So this book tells the story of how Tolkien embarked on the creation of Middle-Earth in his youth as the world around him was plunged into catastrophe, revealing the horror and heroism that he experienced as a signals officer in the Battle of the Somme and introducing the circle of friends who spurred his, his mythology to life. It shows how, after two decades, after two of these brilliant uh, young men were killed, Tolkien pursued the dream that they had all shared by launching his epic of good and evil. John Garth argues that the foundation of tragic experience in the world, uh, First World War is the key to Middle-earth's enduring power. He says that Tolkien used his mythic imagination not to escape from reality, but to reflect and transform the cataclysm of his generation. While his contemporaries surrendered to disillusionment, he kept the enchantment alive, reshaping the entire literary tradition into a form that resonates uh, to this day. And so we're joined uh, today by John Garth by, by Zoom. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. Uh, where are you speaking from? I am in the English countryside in the county of Hampshire, near the medieval city of Winchester and the very modern city of Basingstoke. All right. All right. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, how did you first get interested in uh, in Tolkien's works? Well, I I started out interested in C.S. Lewis, the, the Chronicles oh. of Narnia, which I'm sure many listeners know. Uh, I really was not an avid reader until my school teacher read the first two of those to us at school. And all of a sudden I was an absolutely voracious reader. My mother had a copy of The Lord of the Rings on the bookshelves at home, and I could see that this was like a gigantic version of the same sort of thing, because it had the maps, it had the fantasy names, and it just struck me as being deeply enticing. And I, although I thought I'm never going to read that till I'm grown up, thousand pages, you know, um, at the age of nine, I picked it up one evening and started reading, and I really haven't looked back. What, what has has your perception of Lord of the Rings changed over time? I guess your enjoyment. I guess it inevitably it does, right? Child to adult. It of course it does. I mean, it changed always on every reading because it's that kind of book. It's the kind of book where you enjoy certain very obvious, you know, dramatic moments at first, and then later on you start to see the connections in between parts, uh, connections with with what else Tolkien was writing. And in the end, of course, I was seeing connections between this and his real experiences in the First World War. So that uh, brings us to your book, uh, Tolkien and the Great War. Uh, what was what was the genesis of the, of the book? What prompted you to write it? Well, oddly enough, it was elvish. So I was yeah. in intensely nerdily interested in Tolkien's invented languages. And over the years, it became clear that they were not ever per perfected. So they evolved through Tolkien's long decades of working on his Middle Earth stories. These were the, these were the languages that he invented. Um, and, and then he invented the world as a place for them to inhabit. Right. So it was sort of a backwards way around from the way most people wrote. Anyway, I wanted to uh, understand how these languages had changed as he tinkered with them through his life. So I started looking really closely at the order in which he wrote his stories. And that took me straight to the start of his stories, 1914, 1915 and those years. 
the First World War years, and I could see that he was writing some of his early poems about Middle Earth in military camps, training camps. The the, the big camp where the, it was the jumping off point in France, where soldiers went straight on to the Battle of the Somme. And I just thought, this is really weird, because my impression of the impact of the First World War on the soldiers was that it was disenchanting. This is a kind of classic literary thinking about the First World War, that the people who came out of it and wrote about it wrote about disillusionment and the end of heroism and the end of honour and glory and all of these things. So I thought, okay, I, I really want to understand why Tolkien set out writing something seemingly in the totally opposite direction to that uh, uh, epic fantasy with heroes, with glory, with honour, all of those things. Um, and and it's actually proved to be a really fascinating journey. Uh, so you, uh, I want to quote you from a previous interview you gave, that you, uh, you say you were struck by the apparent disjunction between what he was writing about and what he was experiencing during war. Uh, you say that's what I wanted to explore. The more you explored, the more you understood that there was no real disjunction at all. Right. So Tolkien was one of many First World War soldiers who actually felt that, you know, the war did involve heroism, um, did involve certain moments where, you know, certainly the soldier felt there was there was some glory in it. Uh, but it was also there were also those other sides. There was the mud um, in which soldiers might even drown in certain places. Uh, there were bodies strewn around on the battlefield. It was terribly, terribly difficult to maintain a sense of purpose and heroism and patriotism and so on in these in these circumstances. But what you see in Lord of the Rings, especially, I, I mean, the effect of this runs through all of his Middle Earth writings, but especially in Lord of the Rings, what you see is you see... Um, the kind of two strands going on at the same time as the characters split up through the book. So some of them go on really epic adventures where there are battles and there are flags flying and horns blowing. And, you know, those are the really stirring bits of the book that I enjoyed most when I was a kid. Then on the other hand, you get that very slow, plodding, hard, psychological journey that Frodo and Sam, those great friends, those Hobbit friends, make on their final, uh, the final leg of the quest into the, the dark land of Mordor, where Frodo is suffering, uh, you know, what Tolkien describes as the burden of the carrying this evil, malign ring of power. But the way he describes it is really strikingly similar to the descriptions you read about what they called shell shock in those days. Uh, they called it shell shock because they thought it was the effect of um, vibrations from artillery shells. But of course, it really was what we nowadays call post-traumatic stress disorder. So Frodo shakes, you know, he quivers, he shivers. He, he can't remember things that used to comfort him, like sunlight and green grass. Um, he goes blind temporarily in a moment of terror. And Tolkien never explains this, but this is the kind of, you know, pathology of shell shock. So that was, that's really fascinating. So you've got these two strands, the, the heroism on one side, and then this kind of psychological and very modern sort of journey on the other. 
Um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the vast majority of writers um, leaned into this disillusionment, right? It was natural. This was, <laughs> this was the war to end all wars. It was so horrible. I don't know what the percentages are. You know, just it, it hold, uh, parts of whole generations disappeared. And so you did have cynicism, disillusion, right, society-wide. Why do you think uh, Tolkien leaned the other direction? I think there are probably two reasons. One was his his Christian faith. He was a, he was a devout Roman Catholic, so that gave him something uh, to hold on to that was was beyond the world around him. Um, people who who weren't strong believers, you know, their 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 morale would perhaps have suffered more um, because of the, the, the lacking lacking that that anchor point. Um, and the other is he was. Um, an expert in medieval and classical languages and literature, and therefore history. He knew and believed that what he was going through, what his generation was going through, was only a more extreme version of what had happened many, many times before in history. Um, so he had a sense of perspective. He had a sense of stoicism. Um, and then I think I said there were three reasons, but actually I think there are, there are two more I, I, I should mention. Uh, one was that he had the love of his wife Edith. So when he when he came home from the war, he was invalided out with something called trench fever, and he was chronically ill throughout the remaining years of the war. So two years, 1917, 1918, he was chronically ill. Um, he had the, the the care and love of uh, of his his newlywed wife. Um, and then I think really fundamental is that he had a creative spirit and the war had opened the doors, the floodgates for that creativity. So many people came back from the, 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 the battles of the First World War and did not know immediately what to say about it. When we talk about the literature of disenchantment, there was actually very little of that around during the First World War. There was some poetry. It wasn't at that point very, very famous as it is now. Um, but the big flood of disenchanted literature came 10 years after the war ended. It came in 1927, 28, 29 with books like uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, which I'm sure everyone's heard of. Tolkien started writing immediately. He was out of the out of the battle, and he started writing these 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 epic or mythological stories, in which he took. Although he's although he's writing about dragons and elves and goblins, orcs. What he's really writing about is is not British people versus Germans. It is people who represent the higher aspirations of humanity, creativity, craft, love of nature, battling a force that represents the opposite of all those things, just a, a, a materialistic tyranny that just wants to exploit the world, imprison and enslave people. And um, yeah, so he had a handle on the big picture. And I think the process of creativity helped him to turn something that was 
horribly traumatic, uh, shocking, grievous, because he lost dear friends, into something beautiful in which he could into which he could pour his energies. And at the end of it, he could see the, the, you know, the craft, the beauty of it. And that's a, you know, that's a wonderful piece of alchemy, transformation of, of tragedy into, into something that he could enjoy. And he might imagine that other people also could enjoy and, and, and learn from too, because these are wise, wise stories. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with John Garth, uh, author of Tolkien and the Great War. Um, you mentioned dear friends that he lost some dear friends there. Um, tell us about the, uh, TCBS, the, uh, tea club and Barovian society. When Tolkien was at school, he was, he was in his very late teens and about to leave school. He and some friends, uh, were, were basically running the school library and they had an office and they started brewing tea in the librarian's office and this was not allowed and i think the reason it was not allowed is because in those days there were no electric kettles right um there was no there was no hob in the library the library office so they must have used a bunsen burner right from the science lab pretty dangerous thing to do among lots of books in their time off school they also met up at the local shop the which was called Barrow's Stores. There was a tea room there. They were British, they drank tea. So they called themselves, and this was sort of the, the tea club, which sounds nice and humble, and then the Barovian Society, which sounds much more grand, but it actually just referred to Barrow's Stores. And they were partly just, you know, silly schoolboys, very clever, uh, who liked to laugh, but they were partly also really they were they were growing into maturity and they they were culture vultures they loved uh talking about poetry which was a bigger thing in those days than it is now uh they loved you know talking about drama and other other literature um and they went on they stuck together when they all left school they went to oxford and cambridge universities and then the war broke out and the, the, these these four friends then found that the TCBS, as they called this group, was uh, a, a, an anchor point for them all. They they found strength in each other, and they also found that their ideas about the world, um, right and wrong, came into sharp focus because of what was going on around them. And meanwhile, Tolkien was starting to write his first things about Middle Earth. And these three friends of his became the first fans. He circulated what he wrote and they they loved it. You know, one of them carried one of Tolkien's poems around in the trenches and he told them, he said, I carry this around. This, this is what I'm fighting for. You know, more than more than England. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to learn more about these uh, these friends and, and about Tolkien's experiences in the First World War uh, and, and then how that uh, that shaped or helped to shape um, Middle Earth. We're talking with John Garth, uh, author of Tolkien and the Great War, and we'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, we're talking with John Garth, uh, author of uh, several works, including Tolkien and the Great War. And we thought this is an opportune time to talk about Tolkien. Anytime is a good time to talk about Tolkien, but uh, the new uh, Amazon series out. Um, before we jump back into this narrative, John Garth, um, let's start with Peter Jackson's series. What, what did you think of, of those movies? 
Well, I've got to say I'm very grateful to Peter Jackson because uh, the the advent of those films not only brought lots and lots of new people to uh, to, to tasting Tolkien's world, uh, but it also brought me my book contract for Tolkien and the Great War. Mm. So that was life changing for me. And I found the films, uh, you know, the craft of the films, wonderful. Um, some of the some of the the drama, some of the some of the original bits of story that that Peter Jackson and his scriptwriters inserted into the story uh, was really effective. Um, but but as often as not, because I'm so deeply into the books and I'd already been reading The Lord of the Rings for 25 years by the time these films arrived, um, it, I, I find it a really weird experience to, to see things for the first time. And I'm thinking, well, the story's going to go this way. And then all of a sudden it's going that way. So the sense of dramatic tension and surprise and so on that, you know, everyone else is experiencing doesn't quite work for me. And that's a shame. I really, I really wish I could just wipe my memory of the book and enjoy the films for what, what they are in themselves. In fact, I've heard Peter Jackson himself say exactly the same thing. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know if you've been able to see any of the new series on, on Amazon at all. I have been watching it. So I would mm -hmm. say sort of the same things apply, except that series is based on... Uh, so, so get this, the, the whole the whole show is going to run to something like 50 hours, mm. but it's based on only material in The Lord of the Rings about the second age of Middle-earth, which is way, way back in time compared to the events of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit themselves. And there is, you know, only really a few pages in The Lord of the Rings dealing with this stuff. So the, the Amazon studio screenwriters have had to develop a whole load of stuff, uh, storylines, characters, to put around the structure that Tolkien built there. Um, I think on the whole, they appear to be doing it quite well. Um, I can certainly see that, you know, there are other Tolkien fans who are really, really watching it keenly and seeing some, seeing that there's been some really impressive research that's gone into there. Um, I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the actor, but the guy who plays the character Elendil has been interviewed and, and it's very clear that he's read widely in Tolkien and he's brought everything he's learned to the, to the, to, to that role. Um, so, you know, that's great. That's really admirable. Um, again, I kind of wish that I could come to this totally fresh. I think honestly, if I was a 15 year old or a 20 year old, even, you know, I would just fall over with excitement about it. Mm. Um, I guess back to Tolkien and, and, and the great war as a subject of your book and how this influences, uh, right? Uh, Middle earth. Uh, first of all, Tell us a little bit about Tolkien the man. This is, uh, you know, he's kind of hidden be behind his great works, right? Uh, tell us about Tolkien. Right. So most famously, apart from being the, the maker of Middle-earth, he was an Oxford professor of English language and literature. And what that meant in Tolkien's case was that he looked very closely at the history of the English language and related languages. Um, like Old Norse, the language of the Vikings, and, and Anglo-Saxon, Old English. And this is why he also imbibed a great deal of stuff about mythology. Um, he 
was actually born in Southern Africa in a, in a country that no longer exists, the Orange Free State. It's now part of the country of South Africa. Uh, he was born to English parents. He could not cope as a young boy with the climate there, um, really dry, torrid temperatures. And his mother brought him home and his brother, excuse me, uh, on, a, on a trip um, when he was three. And while they were in England, uh, the boy's father died. So they stayed in England. And for the next few years, they lived in a, a little village outside the city of Birmingham, a green rural village, which Tolkien later said inspired the Shire. So there was no electricity, there were, there were no streetlights, there were no motor cars, there weren't even trains. Um, it, it was an idyll, uh, a, a paradise. And when Tolkien left it, he felt it was a paradise loss. They then moved into the city of Birmingham, which was much more, uh, a much less nurturing place to be. Um, and uh, his mother at that point um, uh, embraced Catholicism. Um, and then she died when Tolkien was just 12. So he and his brother then became the wards of uh, their, their Catholic priest, Father Francis Morgan, whom Tolkien um, dearly loved, um, and he came to call him his second father. He then went to the best school in Birmingham, which is where we get back to the story of the TCBS. Um, but in the meantime, he and his brother were living in lodgings in the city of Birmingham, and he met a fellow lodger who was also an orphan, and her name was Edith Bratt. And the two of them fell in love. She was a pianist. She was a very talented young woman, uh, three years older than Tolkien, actually, very beautiful. Um, and, you know, it might, you might say this was all quite, kind of inevitable, um, given the circumstances. Father Francis Morgan, his guardian uh, decided that uh, this relationship was no good. Uh, and it was no good primarily, I think, because Tolkien was clearly a very talented boy with a great future ahead of him. And he was applying to get into Oxford University, which is not easy. So he had to study hard. And, and Father Francis, you know, perhaps rightly felt that this would throw him off course. So he actually forbade them from seeing each other or even communicating. So for, for the next three years, until Tolkien turned 21, which is when he became, a, you know, officially an adult um, and no longer uh, beholden to his guardian, uh, he did not communicate with Edith. And then he wrote to her, uh, found out she was engaged to be married, got on the train, and talked her out of it. And they were married in 1916, just before he went off to the Battle of the Somme. Mm. Well, that, uh, <laughs> that tells you a lot about Tolkien, right? Um, <laughs> that, uh, all of that, yeah. Good, that's, with, that's good with words. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Um, so tell me about Tolkien at war. What uh, what what did he do? What was, was his, and he's a part of this, you know, the, this class, right? The, um, the young men, young men were junior officers, right? And then high mortality rate, for one thing. There, there was. So the, Britain, as everyone knows, was really, really class, a class society, class society, a class-based society in those days. And 
the army selected for its officers young men who had been to the right schools and the right universities. And all the rest were just taken on as ordinary soldiers, privates and sergeants and corporals. So Tolhim was one of many, you know, university educated young men who were thrust into this war um, as, as junior officers. And as junior officers, they had to go uh, and lead all the other men. They, uh, I think the, you know, the, the average mortality rate for soldiers as a whole um, in, in the British Army during the First World War was one in four uh, died. Um, no, I've got that right. No, sorry, wrong, <laughs> wrong way around. Uh, I, I'm not going to give you it. But the average rate for officers was one in five. So one in five officers died, junior officers. Um, the, the, the number of ordinary soldiers was lower than that because they were behind the officers as they marched out into no man's land into the face of the you know the machine gun bullets so it was uh, it really cut a sway through tolkien's uh friends you know in fact it, you look at photographs of his close friends and you work out how many died and the rate was far higher than one in five you look at the tcbs the rate was two in four you know um so it was a terrible terrible thing and um you can't overestimate what it took i think to come through that and keep yourself together mm. tell me about his uh, his friends in the tcbs well there were as i said there were four of them um there was jeffrey bache smith he was the guy who persuaded Tolkien to start writing poetry, which was actually Tolkien's route into writing about Middle-earth. Um, and he was really interested in Celtic mythology. So that was another thing that he had in common with, uh, with Tolkien. So uh, the Irish myths, the Welsh legends. Um, another one was Robert Quilter Gilson. He was an artist. And I found pictures that um, Rob Gilson has painted in the same spot as Tolkien around the same time. So it's clear that they... Tolkien was also an, a, a keen landscape painter at times. They painted side by side. Um, and the other one, Christopher Wiseman, was a musician. And he, he survived of, of, of the other three. He was the one survivor. When Tolkien came back from the war, uh, from the Battle of the Somme, one of the very first things he wrote was a creation myth in which the world is sung into being by the heavenly choir led by God. And it's my conviction that because Christopher Wiseman, the musician, was the only surviving member of this early group of Middle Earth fans, Tolkien was specifically thinking of Christopher Wiseman and also of Tolkien's own wife, Edith, the pianist, when he decided to make music the creative, uh, the creative force uh, behind Middle Earth. Uh, tell me about your research. There's some interesting bits of, of there's letters. You went to the battlefields, right? Tell me a bit about that. I did. I wrote a draft uh, which was based on a lot of published material and the unpublished war diaries, the handwritten diaries uh, that, that were produced in the trenches day by day for each unit, each battalion. And the battalion was the unit with which Tolkien moved around. 
Um, I looked at Tolkien's own service record, which was actually mostly about his illnesses, <laughs> not about what he did on the Somme. Um, and I looked at books describing what happened in the, in the areas of the battle in which Tolkien was involved. And having written this draft, I went with a friend to the battlefield, which is now green fields. It's very peaceful. You know, birds sing, uh, trees are there in all their glory. It looks very much like, uh, this may not be much help to, you know, listeners in Utah, but it looks very much like southern English downland landscape that I'm familiar with. Hills, fields, uh, trees, uh, and very, very pretty. I stood there and we found the spots where Tolkien would have been for certain uh, actions, certain military attacks and so on. And I read aloud my draft and corrected it according to what I saw around me in terms of the lie of the land. Um, so one thing that the thing that struck me most, actually, apart from the, the radical change in the look of the landscape from blasted battlefield to this very pleasant countryside, was that reading all these books have made it sound as though the slopes these soldiers had to go up were incredibly steep. They weren't. They were gentle slopes, you know. And the reason they must have seemed so steep is because of the machine gun. You know, if you're if you're going up an exposed hillside against a machine gun, it's like climbing Everest, right? Um, after that, I eventually contacted uh, Tolkien's publishers in England, who are called Harper Collins, to ask if they'd be interested in the book, and they said yes, because there's this film coming out, and we want to publish something alongside with all our film tie-in books that's going to be you know, quality reading, and, and this sounds like the ticket. Um, and having done that, I then got permission from uh, the Tolkien Estate, that's his, the, the, the family-run organisation that decides who can do what with, with the materials that Tolkien left, and they gave me permission to go into the archives in Oxford and read the letters there between him and his friends in the TCBS. Um, and also some other see other papers that he kept from the First World War. And to me, the story that came out of those letters really gave my book its beating heart. I want to read uh, a section from an interview you gave about the letters. Um, so the letters, you say, brought Tolkien's experiences leaping into life. And I saw that a book about the Great War could not just be about battle, but also must deal with the abrupt maturation and separation of friends and loved ones, military training and convalescence, and cataclysmic changes in culture and personal worldviews. Yeah, so essentially it's a great story about four friends and, and what happens to them when they are, by surprise, plunged into world crisis, in which they, they're not allowed to just sit on the sidelines, they have to act. You know, well, actually, they, they all volunteer to join the military. Um, but if they hadn't, at some point, they would have been conscripted. You know, uh, they brought conscription in just just uh, a year after Tolkien joined up. So, you know, it, it also has the potential for inspiring a great book like Lord of the Rings, where you have four friends 
going off into a war they had not expected, taking on the terrible burden of responsibility, being divided from each other in different parts of the theatre of war, wondering whether the others are still alive or safe or in peril, you know. Um, so it's, it's not like I'm saying, you know, these four TCPS figures are the four hobbits and you can see one is this one and the one. I don't think it worked like that at all. But I think those experiences of fear, of, of love for, for, for fellow men, for friends, um, of intense danger really feed, fuel the power of that book. If you just joined us, we're talking with John Garth. He's author, among other works, of Tolkien and the Great War, and that's what we're talking about on the program today. Let's take another uh, brief break. We'll be back after this. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with the writer John Garth uh, his and his book, Tolkien and the Great War, is our focus uh, right now. new series on Amazon is out, and, uh, of course, you can go back and watch the Peter Jackson uh, series. And, uh, of course, well, most of all, read read the books, right? what you'd say john Carthy. i would say read the books yeah yeah, yeah. but you know the, the the films the peter jackson lord of the rings movies are you know they're tremendous movies so yeah by all means if that's if that's your taste and if that's the what you want to start with go for it yeah what's your favorite is lord of the rings hobbits silverillion uh what's what's your favorite it's it's always going to be the lord of the rings mm-hmm. um i read it before i read the hobbit um and and the Hobbit somewhat disappointed me because it wasn't as epic as the Lord of the Rings. Um, and although I think that's a, a shameful judgment from a, you know, a young lad, I was probably, I was 10, I guess, at the time when I read that, um, it's, it, that also is a great book um, and, and eminently suitable for most 10 year olds, you know. Um, the Lord of the Rings just has, what it has for me is it has the, the mythic qualities, the epic qualities of the Silmarillion, which is the the cycle of legends that Tolkien began writing during the First World War, which revolves around Tolkien's immortal and noble elves, right? Um, And and their first cataclysmic war with a, a satanic enemy who is here on Earth. Um, the Lord of the Rings takes that but also puts hobbits into that world and shows that hobbits basically ordinary and really kind of quasi modern people they talk like us you know it puts them into this world of 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 legend and uh, almost mythical dangers and it shows how they manage to survive um, and make a make a vast difference too. And I think that makes it into a, a phenomenally powerful structure um, with de- with built-in depth and, uh, you know, just a, a, such a variation of moods that you go through reading it. It's a great travel book with its, you know, descriptions of this fictional landscape, which just sounds so real. It's a great book about camaraderie, about friends, and how their friendships grow, and particularly the relationship between Frodo and Sam, which is extraordinary. Um, 
and it's a, you know it's a great book visualizing what medieval life is like you know particularly the 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 horse kingdom of rohan which is i think for many people who go go on to professionally academically study uh medieval history and languages and so on that's what inspired them to go there in the first place you know um nowadays um, you know, if you're a writer, you can you can take a class in world building, right? You can, you know, there there precedents for Tolkien. Where did where did this come from? It seemed to be a bolt from the from the blue. There had been world building before, but not a lot of it. Um, so one of his favorite writers was a man called William Morris, who is perhaps more famous for designing wallpaper. Um, he was a fantastic artist and designer, uh, but he also wrote what he called romances, which were kind of set in often in medieval places, uh, but sometimes in fictional places. And, uh, you know, a, a, another kind of background literature would have been things like the allegorical journey you see in The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, where places have particular symbolism. So all of that goes, flows through culture and Tolkien takes a bit from here, a bit from there. But he he wants to, he wants, a, as I said earlier, he wanted to make a world with its own history in which his invented languages could live. And because he was so uh, keen on history as well, he was very good at it. And he lived history, he lived the First World War, so he could bring all of that into it. But it had to be a world um, both different from ours and actually ident identified with ours. It's a world where these languages could exist, but it is our own world. To, 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 to work that trick, Tolkien puts his stories way, way back in a kind of mythical past of our own planet. And, um, and he makes these stories, and he called them at first, the lost tales, the tales that have not survived into the myths that we remember. Um, tell me more about uh, uh, the importance of language. This was very important, wasn't it? Uh, these languages that, that Tolkien invented, and then he's creating a world for, for these languages. Yeah, he, he had the most extraordinary um, facility for language. And, and by that, I don't mean necessarily picking it up and speaking it, um, which, you know, obviously is a, is, a, is a great talent to have. Tolkien loved the flavor of languages and he had an acute sensibility for it. He, dis he, he compared it sometimes to tasting wine. So if you can imagine how a wine taster talks about wines in a way that most of us can't really understand, you know, and, and they, they appear to have this, you know, phenomenal nose and palate for, for, for distinguishing things about wine that, you know, the rest of us can't necessarily distinguish. Tolkien had that with languages. So he, he would hear a language like Welsh and just love the flavor of it. And Welsh inspired one of his elvish languages, Sindarin, uh, the language of the, the wood elves, the gray elves in the Lord of the Rings. And the language that was really key for him was Finnish, the language of Finland, uh, which he got into when he was at university at Oxford and he started making a language that was inspired by the sounds of Finnish. And that was his first Elvish language, which he called Quenya. 
So when you when you look at Tolkien's uh, early notebooks of these languages, they're little dictionaries, lexicons. You see, it's not only words like alder, meaning tree, but it's names of people and places. Uh, so he's he's using this these the this language building process to also create a mythology with you know with particular characters this was actually long before he wrote the hobbit and the lord of the rings so he was doing this in 1915 and all through the first world war and and i can tell you if you like about how he came to write the hobbit because that's quite important too yeah i'd love it yeah <laughs> A really different story. So he had been, you know, continuing to craft this big mythology, which he called the Silmarillion, um, right through into the uh, into the 1920s, and, and, and he actually kept it up right to the end of his life. But he had four kids by the end of the 1920s, and three of them, his sons, were old enough to listen to bedtime stories, and he would make up stories for them. And so he came up with this bizarre idea of throwing a character called Bilbo Baggins, who was really like a sort of middle-class, ordinary Englishman, uh, into his epic world of the Silmarillion. And that generated the story of The Hobbit, um, which is, you know, it's, it's again a story about uh, fellowship, about someone timid and ordinary finding their own courage and extraordinariness, uh, that's Bilbo, you know. Uh, he becomes a, 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 a hero at the end, but not in any way that you might expect. Um, and so th that need just to generate stories for his children made him do something really strange and, and fuse this epic world with, with a kind of low comedy. It's fascinating. And, and everything flowed from that. Yeah, that is fascinating. We just have about three minutes uh, left in, in the conversation. I wonder, uh, you know, from a broad perspective, what, what would Tolkien want us to take away from Lord of the Rings? Well, many things, I think. But, but all those values, you know, friendship, uh, honor, you know, the, the, the honoring your own instincts to do the right thing um, for the world and for other people. Um, he, he had a really strong environmental message, you know. So in his books, trees go to war against people who cut them down and burn them to run furnaces for, for, for industry, you know. Um, uh, undoubtedly, Tolkien would appreciate the fact that there are Christians out there who, for whom his stories resonate strongly. Um, uh, he would love the fact that people are into the, the languages he invented. And most of all, he would just love the fact that people enjoy his stories. Well, we've been uh, talking on Access Utah today with John Garth. His book is Tolkien and the Great War, one of one of his books. And uh, on the occasion of the release, uh, continuing release of this, this series, which is going to be uh, quite a long series, it sounds like, from Amazon. Um, and uh, good time to talk about Tolkien. Any time is, of course. And uh, we appreciate you, John Garth, uh, lending us your expertise. Appreciate it. 
Thank you very much for having me. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. During the depths of the Great Depression, thousands of young men went to work on over 1,000 water projects in Utah. This week, learn about some of the projects that survive to this day. More after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the 1930s, there was no shortage of work to be done on Utah's infrastructure. Federal agencies had plans at the ready, but lacked funding to bring those projects to life. In response to the Great Depression, however, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal introduced a raft of social programs funded through deficit spending. The Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, was one such program that put people to work while investing in needed infrastructure. The CCC employed thousands of young men and in Utah alone constructed 423 dams and 792 springs, waterholes, and small reservoirs throughout the state. More than just a make-work program, the CCC addressed water needs in neglected parts of rural Utah. CCC workers were all young men between the ages of 18 and 25. Most lacked specialized skills, but the Corps gave them training. Although many of the projects they constructed were crude, Enrollees also helped build some of the largest water projects in the state. They mostly did odd jobs such as rip wrapping, which is placing rock along the surface of the dam to stabilize the wall and prevent erosion. Among the site managers and more specialized workers, these men earned a reputation for doing quality work despite their inexperience. CCC workers built check dams for flood control and reservoirs to water herds. One such project opened up a new range for grazing in the Mineral Mountains west of Beaver. By damming a natural granite basin below a spring, the CCC made a small reservoir that could hold 576,000 gallons. Enrollees then built a pipeline to the valley floor to fill troughs for sheep and cattle. Work conditions were challenging and sometimes dangerous. Enrollees weathered desert heat in the summer and snowstorms in the winter, at times fighting off rodents and even a suffocating swarm of Mormon crickets. But these young men had jobs and the water that came from their efforts was put to good use. The CCC likely played a role in convincing Utahns of the value of the New Deal. Utah's leaders tend to be skeptical of federal government spending, but Utahns enthusiastically voted to re-elect President Roosevelt. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.